Hebrews chapter 8. And today we'll be preaching on the covenant. The covenant. Let's pray. Let's pray. Dear me, Father, we come to you today as your sheep, asking you to feed us by your word. Lord God, we ask that you will pour out your spirit on us so that we could have deeper understanding of your love towards us in Christ Jesus. We ask that your spirit will convict us of sin of righteousness. And we ask that your spirit would lead us into all truth. Do this for the glory of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When ISIS, the Islamic militant group, walks into a Middle Eastern town and tells everybody to convert to Islam or die, What would keep Christians from turning away from Jesus Christ as God and as Savior and turning to Islam? Imagine they have just saw the the militant group bring out this uh, these Christians, and they have these Christians seated, kneeling with orange suits on, and there are machetes and guns at their head. What would a Christian do? What should they hold on to that would keep them? Or when a friend, I know a friend who lives in a tough neighborhood, he's beginning to strongly consider Jesus Christ and to make him his own. And so he makes a public profession of faith, but all of a sudden when he thinks everything goes good because it's going to go good, his family makes him the butt of all the jokes. And the friends that he used to fight with are now fighting against him. What should he consider that will keep him near God? The situations are endless. Every day, every second, we are faced with the questions of turning back to our old way of life and turning away from Jesus Christ. And this is not new. In the book of Hebrews, the Jewish Christians at that time were facing very hard situations. This letter is written to a group of Jewish Christians who are strongly considering letting go of Jesus Christ and turning back to their old way of life due to heightened social and religious pressure. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to give them courage to hold on to their profession in Christ. And so chapters 1 through 7 is um, the writer telling them all about how great Jesus is, how he is better than the angels, he's better than the prophets, and he's better than any high priest. And in chapter 8, we know that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. So the two things that we are going to look at today is that our Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant with God. 
and that that covenant has better promises. Now, I'm going to say some terms like high priest and covenant that you may not know. But just because you don't know them does not mean you don't need to know them. My, uh, my wife was cooking a dish a, f- a few uh, months ago, and we, she was um, about to make it, and she didn't recognize an ingredient that was needed. So she said, oh, I'm familiar with it, therefore I'm not going to buy it. But yet, that was the exact ingredient that made the whole dish. It still tasted good, though, boo. <laughs> but that was the exact ingredient that was needed to make the whole dish what it was supposed to be. Just because she didn't know what it was does not mean she didn't need it. And it's stuff like that all the time. So key in as we talk about what a high priest is and listen closely as we talk about the covenant. Because it matters. It matters to you. It matters to me. And it matters to God. So I'm going to start in chapter 8. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. 1 through 13, sorry. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who, has, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not men. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declared the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In these first couple of verses, we see what a priest is and what a priest does. Look at verse 4. 
It says, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. This is what priests do. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Priests were men who offer gifts according to the law. If you, read the early books of the, if you read the early books of the Bible, which are called the books of the law, you will see that priests were appointed by God to make various offerings to God on behalf of the people. One of the offerings that had to be made was sin and guilt offerings because the people were constantly breaking the commandments of God's law. The sin offerings included the murder of some type of animal in order to appease the wrath of God for the Israelites so they could be able to stay in fellowship with him. And these sacrifices had to be done over and over again because they kept sinning over and over again. Now, I know some people who don't go to zoos and the circus because they love animals. So when I said that God ordered the slaughtering of animals as a sacrifice, you you may have got a little antsy. Well, my friends, I appreciate animals, and God does too. He created them. But you've got to understand the ultimatum here. It's either the animals or it's people. Because God demanded that someone had to die and blood had to be shed. You choose. I choose animals. And so that's what God did. He allowed them to sacrifice animals to appease his wrath. Now, it's worth noting again that the priest was the one who made the offerings. Not just anybody could walk up to God and have this type of relationship with him. Priests were men appointed by God to handle the offerings and the sacrifices and and were the only ones designated to do this job. We learn a little bit about, more about priests in verse 5. Take a look. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. They performed these duties inside of a tent. The tent was also called a tabernacle. And just to paint a little picture, there's a courtyard, and then there was a, a, the tent, and then inside the tent there was a holy place, and then inside of that, I mean past the holy place, was a most holy place. And it was at the most holy place that the presence of God would dwell and sit upon this, this mercy seat, this throne, and that's where the priest would be able to make sacrifices and prayers and offerings to God. And so there was a most holy place. But notice again what the beginning of the verse says. It says, they serve a a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The earthly tent was just a picture of what was in heaven. It was a pattern of the heavenly temple. Now, this doesn't mean that there was a literal heavenly temple, it just means that the, he- that the heavens is holy, free of sin. And the reason is because God dwells there. And so this tent was to reflect the holiness of God and the holiness of his dwelling place. So now, if I knew that the Lord was in his holy temple, and that the earthly temple was just a shadow of the holiness of heaven, personally, I would think the Israelites would want someone in that temple, in the real thing, I would want somebody as close to God as possible working on my behalf. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is telling them. 
verse 1. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now I'm going to work through these verses backwards, but we're going to see in these verses what makes this high priest so great. It says, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not men. Now we all know that the Lord is greater than Moses, and what he does has more glory than what Moses does. So when it says the high priest is in the temple built by the Lord, this is showing that this priest is higher than all other priests. The other reason why this priest is high is because the next verse says he is at the, in the, other, in the earlier part of the verse, it says he is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, before I go any further, remember God is omnipresent. God is spirit. God does not have a right hand. God does not have a left hand. This is a term used to illustrate power and honor. This great high priest is great as at the right hand of God, showing how much honor and power he has. It shows that he is not just a mere servant in the tent, but he has power over the tent. And lastly, what makes him the priest of all priests is what we see earlier in the verse. It says he is seated. Remember I said that the priest had to make offerings continuously. And this meant that they could not sit down. As a matter of fact, in the earthly tents, there was no seats located in the most holy place for the priest to sit. And yet this priest is seated in the heavenly temple at the right hand of God, no longer making sacrifice for sins. Now, who was this great high priest in this temple? Well, we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, so you can turn there really quickly. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who is now seated at the right hand of God. He is the high priest. What the priest kept trying to do over and over every day, every year, Jesus, the Son of God, did finally when he offered himself on the cross. 
See, this is the problem with Orthodox Catholicism and Orthodox Judaism. They still operate as though they can do enough sacraments and rituals to earn God's favor, and that is just not true. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews says that to reject the Son as the only mediator between God and man is more than a misunderstanding, but it is trampling underfoot Jesus and shaming the Spirit of grace. To add anything to what Jesus Christ has done is to condemn oneself to hell. Whether it's Orthodox Catholicism or Judaism or Islam or a self-righteous Christian, if anyone tries to add their works to the work of Christ, they are denying his work and therefore denying the Son. And why would anyone want to deny Christ's work anyway when he is seated at the right hand of God? I'll show you how this has relationship to us. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. My mother told me, if you can't do better than them and you can't beat them, to join them. Why would you add to it? Join him. And you join him by faith. By faith, you unite yourself to Christ. And therefore, you will be seated in the heavenly places with him next to God, next to the king of majesty, Next to the king of glory, the king of righteousness, the king of comfort, join Christ by faith. You can't get any closer to God than what Jesus is. So be with him. But you say, the verse says, I'm seated here, I'm seated next to God, but, I, but I'm seated in a chair listening to a sermon well, I, me and my wife just, by God's grace, was able to purchase a house in Marshall Heights. But these last two weeks, we had to raid the refrigerator and sleep upstairs in the, in, in the Smucker's house. Now, which house was mine? Marshall Heights. I know because I still got bills. I was getting bills from Marshall Heights. <laughs> but yet I was staying at the Smucker's house. This is the same thing. Listen, if you've been purchased by Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, you are now seated in heaven. Heaven is your home, and that's what you have to know. That's what those Christians in, in uh, those Islamic territories have to know. When they're seated on the ground with a knife to their neck, they have to know that they're seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. When you're seated at the doctor's office and everything seems to be going bad, you say, no, I'm seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. When you're seated at home and everything seems to be, everything going wrong, you say, no, I'm seated in heaven with Christ Jesus. 
You're close to God. You're close to him. You know, the priest, the priest had, to, um, they had on his garments, they had an ephod, and inside the ephod were the names written of, of, of the nations of Israel. And, and it symbolized that he was bringing the, the, the people before God. Listen, your name is written, engraved on Jesus' hand and on his heart. You're close to him. But if you're not in Christ, you're far from him. You're as far from him as the earth is from the heavens. You're as far from him as the east is from the west. And this is not just a separation, but this is a condemnation. This is why in our statement of faith, number two says, furthermore, since man, by reason of his fall into sin, had brought himself under the curse of God's law, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace in which he freely offers life and salvation by Jesus Christ to sinners. You need a covenant of grace because, listen, we're, you're in sin, and the, the consequence of sin is not just a, uh, uh, just a separation from God. No, it is eternal damnation. So unite yourself to Jesus Christ and receive this grace so that you can be brought near to him. So you can be brought near to him. Another thing that the, the priest had to do was he offered prayers on behalf of the people. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. This is why my brother, um, oh my goodness, um, Andrew, I'm sorry, my brother Andrew prays so confidently. Why do we pray confidently? Because he knows and we know where our high priest is in heaven. So we approach the throne of grace knowing that he hears us. And that he loves to answer us. But Jesus Christ did not just purify us from sins. But he also did something else. He brought us into a better covenant with God. He brought us into a better covenant with God. Look at verse 6. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus Christ died for our sins, and then he also brought us into a better covenant. See, God is not merely interested in having casual relationships with people. He is not okay with having relationships with no commitments and no oaths and no vows. No, God is intended to be in a relationship that matters, a relationship that has obligations and requirements. And this type of relationship is called the covenant. For a good time in my life, I used to say that I had a personal relationship with God. And all that really meant was that I had God on my own terms. But that's not 
That's not how God operates. God makes the terms. God makes the laws, and God runs the show, and therefore, you have to fall in line with God's will. And so God makes covenants with people. We see this exemplified by God with the people of Israel. I don't know if you know the story, but in Genesis 15 and, 7, uh, 15 and chapter, chapter 15 and chapter 17, God chose a man who would later be named Abraham to establish a covenant with him. And it was through Abraham that God would create a covenant people named the Israelites. And the Israelites would be a people that God would bless and therefore display his glory to the world. You know, kind of like when um, people get the charities um, and, and they do so just to show how much money they got. I'm not saying nobody here does that. But they, they do it to show off their glory and their riches. Well, God does it in a much more holy, much more righteous, much more genuine way. He chose the Israelites as his covenant people so that he can display his glory, the riches of his grace, the riches of his mercy, the riches of his love to the world. And he kept the Israelites. One of the mysterious ways he displayed his glory to the world through the Israelites was by directing them into slavery in Egypt and then delivering them after 400 years. And he did it by miracles and powerful wonders, and he did it through his servant Moses. Now, like I said, these, this covenant had stipulations and obligations and rules that the people had to meet. And the people were supposed to walk according to the law and obey God's commands with their hearts. If they did, the covenant would stand, and they would remain in God's good pleasure. And one of the ways God helped them was by writing down the laws on tablets and stones and then putting it inside of an ark so that they could always have it before them. And another way that God would help them was by, once again, giving them priests so that they could teach the people about the laws. But if anyone knows the history of the Israelites, you know that they constantly, continuously broke the covenant of God. Look at the following verses, verses 7 through 9. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord. Here, the writer of Hebrews is quoting a passage from the Old Testament book called Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was written at a time in which the Israelites were receiving the curses of God because they had broken his laws. Matter of fact, even the priests had turned from God and performing false sacrifices. And all of this led to the Lord declaring that he would establish a new covenant with Israel. Now note, the fault was not with the covenant. The fault was with the people. The people had disavowed God. The people became idolaters. 
when God said, I do, the people were saying, I don't. I find it almost amazing that when God took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt, they almost immediately began to reject him. I find that amazing. And so Jeremiah begins to look forward and says that the Lord will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. Now, it says house of Israel. How should we here today think about that? Well, Paul tells us, and you don't have to turn to it, but you can write it down. Paul tells us simply and clearly in Ephesians 2.15 that if we are placed our faith in Christ, we are one new man. And in Galatians 3, verses 7, it says that those of faith are the sons of Abraham. Therefore, all who have placed their faith in Christ are now a part of this new covenant projection that Jeremiah is declaring. Now, anyone who reads the account of the Israelites has to say to themselves, if they had all the wonders and the glories of God right before them, if they saw God split the Red Sea and he provided manna from the heavens and brought water out from the rock, and if they... They had all that in front of them and still turned away from the Lord. How in the world am I going to stay near? And the answer is, you're going to stay near because God's going to keep you near. You're going to hold on to him because he's going to hold on to you. That's the promise of the new covenant. I read a statistic that said that the recidivism rate for people who have gone to prison and returned home is 70%. But guess what? When Jesus sets a person free from sin, the recidivism rate, zero. Because who the Son sets free is free indeed, and you will not go back. And this is why because of his promise of the new covenant. Verse 10, this is promise number one. Verse 10, the end of verse 10 says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. You see, in the old covenant, the law was written on tablets of stones and then placed in the ark, as stated earlier. The law was external, therefore, and was brought to them. But in the new covenant, the law is going to be internal and written on them. It was going to be tattooed on their hearts. Paul says when speaking to the Corinthians, he says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In the new covenant, the Spirit of God would would be on people's hearts so that his people would never be able to shake it and so that his people would continue to walk in his ways. The person with the law on their hearts cannot take sinning for too long without feeling anguish within their souls. I was doing a, 
a membership interview recently, and we were recounting how at our last church, the, uh, we heard this statement while we weren't members that if you don't consider or try to be in meaningful relationships within a church, or if you don't try to be a member of a church, you might need to reconsider if you're a Christian. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm a Christian. But then when he showed me that it's what it talks about in Hebrews, that we should not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, and how it talks about we should submit to leaders, then, I, then the, that law began to be, I was like, oh my goodness, I need some, we needed to submit to that. And so we became members of a church. It wasn't because of the pressure from the pastor. It wasn't because from the pressure from the church. It was because the Holy Spirit had was written his law on our hearts. And so we couldn't shake it. And that's how we all are. If you are a Christian, you cannot wallow and sit in sin and you cannot enjoy it. Now, we ain't go, we're not going to be perfect, but it's going to be an all-out war. You, you heard what Paul said in Romans 7, right? He said, for the, the, I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. This is a battle. But the good thing is now you're on the right side of the battle line. The victory, we know the victory is now ours because we saw what Jesus Christ did in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh so that now we're going to be brought to God. Jesus Christ has made sure of that. So keep on fighting against sin and know that the reason this sin doesn't sit well with you is because the Spirit has written the law on your hearts. And he's keeping you. This is why David prayed, create me a clean heart and to renew a right spirit in him. Because this is new covenant language. He knew it was not because the woman was pretty or because his wife wasn't showing him enough attention. It was because he had a wicked heart that he sinned. And therefore, he wanted it changed. He wanted it new. He wanted to be a new being. And that's what Jesus Christ does. He writes the law on our hearts. And if he writes on our hearts, he's keeping us because it's, it's out of our hearts that we talk and we walk. So we know we're kept because he's going to write it. He has written it on our hearts. Promise number two, it says, Continue in that verse, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, this promise somewhat flows from the first promise. You see, Christianity is not just a religion of morality, though morality is involved. Christianity is about a relationship with the true and living God. The reason we walk according to his law is because we are his people, and he is our God. We are his Treasured possession. Treasured possession. There is nothing worse than being in a one-sided relationship. You calling that person and them barely answering. You excited to see them, they sad to see you. It's almost like a chore for them to be your friend. Like they doing you a favor. But that's not the case with God. He, he owns his people. 
in the new covenant, he will, there would never be a time when he says, he's not my daughter, or he's not my son. He'll never be embarrassed about you. You're his. Now, if you're being a bad child of God, he will discipline you and then bring you near. If you are a broken child of God, he draws close and he comforts. If you are a broke child of God, he gives you himself. He gives you himself. He has everything in himself that will ensure that you are his people. And he does that because he declares himself to be your God. If you're not a believer, listen to what's going on here. This is the best relationship you could ever be in. I've heard many conversions of when a person who was unwanted by friends and unwanted by their jobs and unwanted by their families, they opened up the scriptures and found themselves wanted by God. So if you're an unbeliever today, if you have not professed faith in Jesus Christ, please know that you are wanted by God. You are wanted by God. There is a bounty on your head. And he's going to find you. Now, when he finds you, Will you have a closed fist, holding on to your sinful ways, holding on to to the wretchedness of your heart? Or will he find you with open hands, reaching out and clinging to Jesus Christ and letting this world fall away? Open hands, open your hands, submit your soul, submit your life to Jesus Christ and latch on to him. And you latch on to him, he will be your God forever. And you will be his child forever. And you will always be wanted. You will always be in his presence, and you will always be near to him. If you are a believer, if you've trusted Christ, but you've made a mess of things in your life, I mean really made a mess, and you are currently bearing the consequences of it, accept the discipline of the Lord and know that it is because He is your God that he is disciplining you. This is a part of him holding on to you. This too shall pass. And friend, if you are in truly awful circumstances in your life and you can't immediately trace any sinfulness directly related to that circumstance, know that one of the ways that God holds on to his people is through trials. And so, Allow yourself to go through this storm and hold on to God because he's holding on to you and he is perfecting your faith. And if you're in a good season right now, everything seems to be peaceful. Know that God gives these seasons for his glory. And you are his child. 
and for the edification of those around you. God is teaching you how to be good stewards of those, of these seasons, of these good times. And know that he uses these good times to keep you as well. And he does all of that because he is your God. Promise number three, verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This promise also flows from the others in that everybody in the new covenant will know the Lord. But one of the things that this emphasizes is that everyone, everyone will know the Lord. There will not be a nominal new covenant believer. There will be no one who draws near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Everyone will know him. And it is because we as a church want to resemble this new covenant community that we only accept into membership those who have placed their conscious faith in Jesus Christ. The people who are in the new covenant covenant community of God, they must know the Lord. And this is also why if over time a person in membership begins to live and enjoy a life of sin, which may reflect that they don't know the Lord, this is why we would then practice some sort of church discipline after prayer and patience. And better better stated, we will withdraw their membership with the hopes that they would repent of their sins, bear the fruits of repentance, and reflect the fact that, that they know the Lord. I have um, had no better times than when I've been in a church um, membership meeting, and we've seen a, a brother who at one point was, was living, going hard for the Lord, and then he got, stumbles into sin, and then the church has to do church discipline. And sometimes in those cases, you think, oh, am I, am I being too hard? What's going on here? How is this going to help this man um, or woman know the Lord? And then on that one uh, membership meeting when we see his name back on the board and it says he has repented of his sins and the whole church stands up and embraces him again. We're like, this is why God instituted church discipline, because he keeps his people. God uses all things, church discipline. He uses us as a covenant community to keep his people. Now, I know it says everyone will know the Lord and that no one would have to teach one another, one another. But we all know that we're, we're not in heaven yet, and this covenant hasn't been fully realized. And that's why God has given us gifts to the church. He's given us preachers, and he's given us teachers, and he also has called us to disciple one another. We're not su- supposed to take this verse and then go off in some type of silo and then try and learn about, learn the scriptures on our own. No, we are supposed to do it in the covenant community of God. We're supposed to do it in the church. Lastly, promise number four, last promise we see in verse 12, 
for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, let's say, let's go to heaven for a minute. Now, what if while we were in heaven, after God had written his law in our hearts, and after he made us his people, and after he gave us a perfect knowledge of him, he still kept in remembrance all that we had ever done? What if he still kept a record of our wrongs? If he did this, he would still have grounds to put us out of heaven and to put us out of fellowship with him. He would have enough charges to condemn us in hell forever. But no, God said, I will remember their sins no more. No more. Everything that has ever been done will be washed away. And this takes us back to verse 16 where it says, But Christ has obtained a ministry more excellent than, that of, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And this takes us back to Jesus Christ being our high priest and making a purification for sins. What we see in Luke chapter 22, verse 19 through 20, Jesus says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, and this is what Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he marked the beginning. He inaugurated the new covenant, which is better than the old covenant. It is his death that has washed away all our sins so that all who will believe in him will be able to experience the blessings of the new covenant. If we place our faith in him, we can be in covenant with God, and thus we can know that God will never let us go. Never let us go. This is a covenant of amazing grace, initiated by him and completed by him. We could not have done this for ourselves, but he did it. Verse Number one in our confession said the distance between God and his creator man is so great that although men endowed as they were with reason, owed obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have obtained to life as their reward had not God. In an act of voluntary condescension made this possible by the making of a covenant. And that's what Jesus did. He established the new covenant by laying his life down on the cross and by raising up from the grave. This is why verse 13 says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant was just a shadow, a picture, a pointer to the new covenant that would be established in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the light shining around and all around the old covenant. So therefore, stop looking at the rituals and stop looking at the offerings and stop looking at other things and turn around and look at the sun. 
Look at Jesus Christ because he is your great high priest. Can you imagine what heaven is going to be like when every promise is realized? I used to wonder when I was a kid whether or not uh, if I made it to heaven, if I would ever be put out of heaven, if we have to start this thing all over again. I'm like, oh, please don't let me do it over again, Lord. But he says, no, I'm going to write it on your hearts completely. So there's not going to be any sin in heaven. So when you're there, you're there. I used to think it was going to be boring. Everybody, zombies, not having any type of emotion, not having any joy, just anything. But it says we're going to be in perfect relationship with the Lord. And if you know him perfectly, that love through him, knowing him perfectly, will flow out in the relationships. So relationships in heaven is going to be perfect humility, perfect joy, perfect happiness. Everything is going to be blissful in heaven. I don't even use that word ever, but it's going to be blissful in heaven because we're going to be his God and, he, and, and he, he's going to be our God and we're going to be his people. And then to know him, I'm going to get to know him. We're going to get to know him the same from the least to the greatest. All are going to know him equally. I'm going to know him like Moses did and like Paul did and like Peter did. To know him, to see his face is what, is what we long for. And if you're not a believer, that's what you're longing for if you don't know it. You're longing to see his face. Because he is everything that you want and need. And, this is, and he is what we have if you're a Christian, if you place your faith in him. And we're going to know him perfectly. And we're going to see him face to face. And we're going to be his and ever, in eternity, forever. And how do we know this will happen? Because we have a great high priest and we have great promises in the covenant. And both of them together says what? Says, I'm going to hold on to you. I'm going to hold on to you. He's holding on to us. You're not a believer. Would you let him hold on to you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we could not have brought ourselves into your presence. We still can't bring ourselves into your presence. It's only because of the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ, who was at your right hand, that we can say that we are near you. And Lord God, we are near you. And we thank you that you have drawn near to us. We ask that you will continuously write your laws on our hearts and on our minds so that we can continue to walk in the fullness of the salvation that we have received in Christ Jesus. And always remind us by your spirit, always remind us that you are our God and that we are your people. And Lord God, continue to remind us that our sins have been forgiven and that there's no condemnation for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. Keep us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.